0: It's my, it's my pleasure this morning to introduce someone many of y'all probably know, a man of many talents, Charles Gaston, who works anywhere from a homebound visitation to our website, uh, just a, a tremendous wealth of, of knowledge and skills and different gifts. And uh, we look forward, Charles, to hearing from you this morning. To begin with, let us pray. Most gracious and ever-living God, thank you. We give you thanks and praise for the gift and the blessing of this day, this opportunity which you have provided for us to gather in your name. We thank you for your servant Charles and his family and pray that as he shares this day, that through the power and the presence of your spirit, that you would speak through him your word to us and that that word would take root, shape, and Fashion us and bear fruit in our lives, and all these things we ask in the name of Your Son, who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
1: Thanks, Craig. Uh, the whole time he was praying, I was sitting here going, "Please, God, just let me look good." But I, I, I suspect, I suspect somehow that's that's really more of a, a, a prayer in the in the flesh than than in the spirit. So uh, this uh, first. Uh, the, the cover piece from from a, a, an original edition, I think, of Moby Dick. You, you may remember from your high school English classes or whenever you might have been forced to read this thing that there are Melville puts certain chapters uh, all the way through it, uh, peppered through the book, that are uh, what the critics call cetological chapters. They're about cetology or whales. They're about the different species of whales and what they eat and, and, and their mating habits and all this kind of stuff. It doesn't have anything to do with Captain Ahab. doesn't have anything to do with the Pequod. It doesn't have anything to do with the narrative, but they're just peppered through there. So if you see anything here today that, that strikes you as not having anything at all to do with the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit, or pilgrims on a journey, then just consign it to, to the seedological chapters. But it's, it's, some of this stuff is here just sort of for context. Uh, Here's my uh, dad and my grandfather in the late 1930s. Uh, Both of them were pharmacists. Uh, My uh, father's side of the family has lived in the Sylacauga area for at least six generations. Uh, Some of them came in just about the time the the Indians were moving out of that part of the state. and uh, he, my grandfather died before I was ever born. In fact, he he died when he dropped dead of a heart attack at about 49 when my dad was uh, on a a, a rush rush party down in Auburn when he was 17, I think. So uh, here he is with uh, my grandmother at the top and in the house that they built in 1940 and that I remember her living in until she died in 1970. Uh, My mom is there uh, with the little black beads. Uh, This is uh, my maternal grandparents, my mother and her two brothers and her sister uh, from probably, I guess, the early 1940s in Anniston. Uh, My uh, grandfather was a a chiropractor and a cattle farmer. Um, Toward the end of World War II here, you see my uncle is in his uh, dress whites. Uh, my mom is in the striped dress. Uh, she still lives in uh, Silicaga. Dad died about three years ago. Um, this is me uh, and you can you, you might it, you might deduce from this that neither my hairline nor my waistline has changed much in the ensuing, in the ensuing half century or more uh, but for what that's worth. That was the, the house uh, we lived in until I was 12 or 13 in Sylacauga. Uh A little bit later, um, I guess you could call this a pilgrim uh, slide here. You know, I got my official, uh, it's a little faint, but this is an official Davy Crockett coonskin cap I'm, I'm wearing. I've got my shooting iron over my shoulder and one hand on the tractor, and i am got that steely-eyed gaze out on the horizon. So. Uh, the obligatory snow picture in in Alabama. Uh, this is January 1962. Me and my two younger brothers. Uh, Joel, the middle brother, lives in Monticello, Georgia, and uh, has two grown sons. And uh, Mari lives here in uh, in, in Birmingham and uh, has a daughter. Um, First Methodist Church in Silica. All my grandparents were all Methodists. Uh, as far back as I can just about Uh, you go far enough back and there's some presbyterians but basically methodists Um, first methodist church in Sulacaga. i can remember when they hung the steeple on that it was uh, one of the biggest churches in town and still i think to this day it's the most architecturally significant structure in Sulacaga. it's a very well-built church uh, nowhere near the membership that we had when i was a kid i'm from right in the middle of the baby boom years, having been born in 1953. So there are an awful lot of us there. Uh, The church also sponsored a Boy Scout troop. Uh, That's uh, me on the right and my buddy Bill Whetstone on the left. Uh, Bill lives here in town. He's a TV producer, a great friend. Uh, Jim Ward was our Scoutmaster. He's the guy in the middle. He still lives in Sulacauga and was... uh, he flew uh, Corsairs off of uh, Jeep carriers in the Pacific in World War II. And he really got us squared away as a, as a Boy Scout troop and taught us how to wash our dishes so we wouldn't get sick and, you know, all that essential kind of stuff. But here, here are me and Bill getting our, our Eagle Scout. Um, 1969, for Christmas, my maternal grandmother gives me this as a present. <laughs> Believe it or not. And I, my jaw just dropped. And I said, Wow. And about five years later, uh, here's the result. That's me in the bow tie. Uh, can anybody recognize the guy next to me from the 1974 Kerala? Stand up, Jim Gaston. He's the one that's married to Vicki. This is Donna here. She's my wife. We get that all the time. Uh, backing up a few years, uh, toward the end of high school, my dad approaches me and asked me if I'd be interested in taking flying lessons. He had been doing that. He sort of gave himself a 40th birthday present of uh, flying lessons, and he kind of kept it secret from my mom until he had soloed, and he had her come out and watch him solo. And I said, well, yeah, sure, okay, I guess I'd like to. Back then, aviation gasoline was 50 cents a gallon, and instruction was $5 an hour. And it was really kind of like having a boat at the lake. It wasn't all that big of a deal. But it was a lot of fun. And on my first lesson, I understood finally why I think why my dad might have kept it secret from my mom, uh, because uh, our mutual flight instructor was a uh, 25-year-old blonde in hot pants. And uh, so and eventually I got a haircut. Uh, after having uh, spent time at Alabama majoring in American studies and English uh, ostensibly with an idea toward going to law school. Uh, fortunately, the Navy recruiters started uh, talking to me toward the end of the time there. And I went to Aviation Officer Candidate School in Pensacola. That's me on the left. Um, got my commission out of there and, and then on out to the fleet. Um, I spent most of my uh, operational flying time in uh P-3 Orion Squadrons, This it's a big four engine, land-based, uh, long range, uh, torpedo bomber, anti-submarine platform, electronic reconnaissance, that kind of thing. Um, a, a neat airplane carried about a nominal crew of 12, about five officers and seven enlisted. Um, a lot of our missions were maybe 12 hours long. Uh, it, I really enjoyed the work. Uh, this is back in the days when the Soviets had their ballistic missile submarines uh, patrolling between Hawaii and California and targeting you know half of the western uh, uh, north, north, half of north america so i mean this this at the time was really pretty important work. Um, it was a big enough airplane you could get up and walk around in it. Here I am up in the in the cockpit. Uh, had a little galley in the back where you could, you know, scramble some eggs or something. I mean, it was, it was pretty nice. Uh, and by the way, this is sort of, when, I, when I'm not confronted with either a current photograph or a mirror, this is sort of the mental image I carry around of myself in my head. <laughs> uh, and uh, it, it, we, we did put on our helmets uh, for takeoff and landing, but uh, that was about it, or, or in the rare occasions when we thought we might be uh, mixing it up in, in something approaching a combat situation. Um, here I am doing my pre-flight uh, once I uh, started out here as, as, as a navigator and handling all the communication systems on the airplane and then uh, moved up to being tactical coordinator where I was sort of uh, coordinating all the, the, the inputs from the different sensor systems and the weapon systems and kind of directing the overall uh, mission. So that, uh, And here I am in Diego Garcia out in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Uh, Coconut palms and you know living in little uh, plywood huts and stuff. Um, psalm 139: If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And I basically got to live this psalm uh, for for much of my time in the Navy. I mean, you can't be out there a thousand miles from the nearest land, 200 feet over the water, looking down at at nothing but water and um, you know, find some of these missions in complete radio silence and and all and and not be aware uh, both of your mortality and the fact that 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 somebody is is keeping you alive and it 's not necessarily you um, while i 'm on scripture i 'm just going to throw in a couple of other things that are sort of in my top ten list here the the story from uh, from Mark 8 when Jesus heals the blind man at Bethsaida, you know, and he spits on his eyes and he says, "Well, how about that?" And he says, "Well, I, I see men as trees walking." You know, the guy had been blind from birth. Jesus fixes his eyeballs so they can communicate with his brain, but his brain hadn't had any experience interpreting what what he's looking at. And two thousand years ago, here we, we've got a, 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 a narrative that that indicates. Things about human uh, neurology and the way the brain works and the way sight works that nobody knew anything about. I just think that's kind of cool. The road to Emmaus. uh, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures? wouldn't you like to have a Sunday school lesson like that? I mean think about it you know he shows up and 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 he's and they've been with him for two or three years and they still don't really get it he's that much of an enigma even to the people he was living with and then he goes through the whole thing and lays it out and man I just you know i i I, I wish I could have heard that um after uh my first uh, fleet squadron, I got uh, posted to London to headquarters staff in the heart of Mayfair. Lived in this little house uh, out in the in the country, uh, up the river a little bit from Windsor, uh, built in probably about the 16th century or so, I guess. Looks kind of creepy now, doesn't it? Um, here I am in Bavaria. Uh, the job uh, entailed a good bit of travel to, to Europe about maybe once a quarter or so. Um, I was at Oberammergau, where they do the passion play uh, every 10 years for a NATO course on uh, uh, nuclear weapons command and control with guys from all sorts of different NATO countries and different branches of service and all. And and got to go to Africa uh, on a little photo safari. Looking at all this stuff here through a camera lens. Now I'd like to be looking at it through my rifle scope. I mean, look back there in the back at all those deer. I mean, golly. Um, yeah. But I, I, I wasn't into that kind of stuff uh, back then. But uh, that kind of came to me late in life. Uh, more on that later. After London, uh, two years in Hawaii in another flying squadron where I was kind of on the road all the time. It was uh, uh, kind of a specialized unit. We did a lot of uh, um, Kind of high-profile intelligence collection, but got to fly a lot, got to see a lot of really neat stuff. I've seen uh, I've seen multiple independently targeted reentry vehicles, basically, uh, you know, inter- intercontinental ballistic missiles with their payloads streaking down out of the heavens and splashing in the ocean. And I've seen them. Uh, I've seen submarine-launched ballistic missiles at night popping up out of the water and streaking off into space. Uh, so, you know, if the end of the world ever comes, I'll know what it looks like. Uh, after that, uh, three years at the Pentagon on the Navy staff. Uh, again, a lot of foreign travel, uh, mostly to, to places like Belgium and London, uh, but a little bit to Canada and Australia and New Zealand. And here I am in New Zealand uh, playing golf with a, a bunch of, uh, um, you know, field uh, air marshals and um, rear admirals and stuff. I mean, it was tough duty. Um, toward the end of the time in uh, Washington, uh, my then wife of seven years kind of woke up one day and decided she didn't want to be married to me anymore. Um, and uh, I, I have to say that uh, to the extent that, uh, that I'm responsible for any of that, I, I chiefly, I think that as the spiritual leader of our household, um, I did a really crummy job. I can't remember a single time we ever prayed together. Um, I mean, we both came from very similar backgrounds and all, and but there just God wasn't in it. You know, we we didn't really let Him in. Um, it was a typical sort of 1980s sort of uh, Navy version of, of, of yuppies, and uh, you know that that was it. Under those circumstances, a lot of guys might have uh, joined the French Foreign Legion, uh, but uh, uh, I was already in the Navy, so I went to Antarctica. <laughs> And uh, here I am standing on the frozen ocean with a big old uh, uh, iceberg embedded in the in the background there. To get there, we would fly from uh, Christchurch, New Zealand, and you see New Zealand off to the east of Australia there, straight south uh, to this little corner down here, which is as far south as you can get in a ship uh, at the height of the summer in January. And we supported all of those. The National Science Foundation ran the program, but the the Navy provided a lot of support to it then. And I was running all the air operations for the program for uh, three seasons. Uh, We would spend five months out of the year down there on the ice and then another seven months back in California getting ready for the next year. And it was really, really, really interesting work. Here's McMurdo Station where I spent most of my time. Uh, Big old kind of yellow building up there in the middle is where I slept and ate. And... um, over here, down here is the, the ops building where, uh, where I worked. Uh, about a 1,000 people here at the peak of the season and a lot of remote field camps in different places doing science. And South Pole Station, which we, we provided all the support by air. Uh, early in the season, we'd go around and check out some of the uh, field camps to make sure they were habitable. Uh, here we are in the dry valleys of the transantarctic mountains, which uh, you know you see there 's a lot of dirt there there 's not all that much snow, it really is a desert. This uh, Emperor penguin uh, came up uh, to one of our airfields for about a week to moult and just kind of stood around behind this snow berm uh, to stay out of the wind until he got his new feathers and he waddled back off to the ocean and uh, They really are that big. Uh, That's me in an ice cave uh, at the end of the Erebus uh, Glacier or Ice Tongue uh, where it kind of meets the ocean. And at certain times of the year, it's safe to kind of crawl around in there. Um, Out hiking on New Year's Day when it almost uh, actually got up above freezing a little bit. Uh, And there I am at South Pole Station uh, like a big goober pointing to the obvious sign that says Geographical South Pole like you can't see it. Uh, These copper pipes here, that's where the National uh, uh, Geodetic Survey comes and and figures out where the geographic South Pole is every year. And The ones you see marching off into the distance back there are the the previous years because that ice, which is a couple of miles thick, is actually moving that far every year toward the beach. Um, Boy Scout Handbook. This was a a fairly influential book uh, early in my life. Uh, Among other things, it taught me how to cook. Which I still enjoy doing to this day. Um, I I also got the basis for my uh, world-famous spaghetti sauce from this scene in *The Godfather*, where Clemenza teaches Michael Corleone how to, you know, you may have to cook for 20 guys sometime, you know. So guys understand this. It's. the guy in the middle here, in, in his uniform, uh, Dick Mazza, good friend of mine. He was uh, a squadron intelligence officer in, our, in my first squadron. All these guys were in my first P3 squadron with me, and this is from this last spring when Dick retired, uh, uh, and I got this picture through the email. And you know, I'm not a sentimental guy, but I looked at it and I, I really kind of got a little choked up. I got a little misty because. You know, you spend so much time with with people like this, doing the kind of work we were doing, and there's a bond that forms there that you just really can never shake. The guy on the left, Fred Horn, uh, could have been one of the kings of Israel. You know, one of the good ones, Uh, a great uh, leader of men, and uh, uh, he retired about a year ago, uh, and he's now a professor at the Naval War College in Rhode Island. And uh, Steve Wiley in the back there is. uh, uh, selling uh, mutual funds, I think. The guy in shirt sleeves is a senior pilot with American Airlines on the South American run, and the guy with the beard is a, a beltway bandit uh, working for a defense uh, contractor, and he's kind of a, a, uh, an expert in Japan and Far East matters and all that. And I think four out of five of these guys are Roman Catholics, and I don't know what that says uh, about me or anything else, but it's, I just thought it was kind of interesting. I read a lot of John Le Carre in my um, in my late 20s, early 30s. I read everything he wrote, and, and this was his first big one. It was his third book, *The Spy* Who came in from the cold, but they made a movie out of it with Richard Burton, and, and everybody's heard of it. Um, I, all his Cold War novels, I think, are just great. This, oh, see, *Pilgrim*. Pilgrim, right? *Pilgrim's on a Journey*. Secret Pilgrim was probably his last really good one. I think the, the, the subsequent books have kind of lacked something since the end of the Cold War. But here in, the, in, the, in Chapter 2, he's got his uh, master smi- uh, spy, George Smiley, uh, lecturing some, some young spies and after, after a big dinner somewhere. And he says there are some people who, when their past is threatened, get frightened of losing everything they thought they had and perhaps everything they thought they were as well. Now, I don't feel that one bit. The purpose of my life was to end the time I lived in. So if my past were still around today, you could say I'd failed, but it's not around. We won. Not that the victory matters a damn, and perhaps we didn't win anyway. Perhaps they just lost, etc. Never mind. What matters is that a long war is over. Um, That pretty well sums up my naval career for me because the first 15 years of my career coincided to the day with the last 15 years of the Cold War, Uh, because on March 31st, 1991, the Warsaw Pact was dissolved and that was pretty much it. Um, P.G. Woodhouse, um, born in the late 19th century, educated at Dulwich College in England, writer of of just the most ridiculous farce you can imagine, but I think probably um, our 20th century's version of Shakespeare Uh, And and a lot of people smarter than me uh, have come to the same conclusion. Uh, His Jeeves and Wooster stories, you know, where the butler Jeeves is is really kind of a Christ figure. You know, he really is a savior to Bertie Wooster. I mean, he he gets him out of jam after jam after jam. But Woodhouse's ability to write and to put words together just is just I I, read these things over and over again. You know, he wrote about 90 books. Uh, and and none of the plots matter, it's all just farce, but but he was a a real master. Uh, He said in 1975 in a BBC interview that he had no ambitions left now that he had been knighted and there was a waxwork of him in Madame Tussauds, and he died in '75 on St. Valentine's Day at the age of 93. Here's a guy, Raymond Chandler. Who actually started at Dulwich College the year Woodhouse finished? And of course, he, Raven Chandler, wrote, I've been reading him this summer for, to have something non theological to read. And it's really good escapism. He wrote, you know, The Big Sleep and a lot of the, all the Philip Marlowe detective stories and everything. He's every bit as good a writer as, as Woodhouse. And um, I've just had a lot of fun reading, particularly his short stories uh, this summer. Um, N.T. Wright, Surprised by Hope, bad title really ought to be eschatology or or the new heaven and the new earth or something like that. But um, I've started this. I haven't finished it yet, but so far I really like it. It, uh, It talks about at great length the fact that Scripture doesn't just promise that we'll be able to go to heaven and be with God. It promises that at the end of time, Jesus is going to come back, the resurrection will occur, we will all get our our physical bodies back in better shape than they ever were. And there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And we'll live in our bodies on this new earth. Why don't we talk about this? Why doesn't the Christian church spend more time, I mean, instead of some sort of pie in the sky and the clouds playing your harp, being like an angel, I mean... Most of us are Christians because we're, we're worried about what's going to happen to us when we die, you know, and and the the good news really is a whole lot better than a lot of what we hear. I just think we ought to there ought to be more emphasis on that, and maybe maybe this book is is something that may move the churches in that direction. I certainly hope so. Just one man's opinion, but you know this this hope really really speaks to me, and and I like the idea of it. It's a theological concept that I can get behind, okay? Um, this is, too. You know, uh, Paul Zoll's book, latest book, Grace and Practice, he taught from this in Canuga a couple of weeks ago when a lot of us were up there. And, uh, you know, it really works, uh, particularly with small children, uh, particularly with husbands and wives, uh, can even work with older parents. It's, it's hard to make it work with siblings, but, you know, it really, it really does work. Um, I commend it to you if, you if you haven't read it, and it's a lot of what he preached for years and years here, but it's just, I think it's distilled into a form that's a whole lot more accessible to a whole lot more people now. Um, just uh, in the a few of my favorite things category here, uh, this is Stan Getz's uh, 1953 uh, album called Plays, where he's got his definitive uh, uh, rendition of Stella by Starlight. Um, and you've already seen the Rolling Stones cover. So we got rock and roll and we got jazz covered. And even though he's in England, his portrait is still staring at me from over here on the wall, my colleague Stephen Schaefer. So I'll I'll throw in Glenn Gould and his uh Goldberg variations, which is just really uh you know, great stuff. When I retired from the Navy, I lived in Dallas for about a year and then moved back to Silicon, to my hometown. And of course I was retired at like what, forty-one, something like that. And uh of course, immediately, people find out that you're available and you're on every local board. And but we got uh, so-called area Habitat for Humanity started, uh, a, a bunch of my friends and I. And um, for the first, for the summer of 1998, it kind of fell to me by default to sort of oversee the day-to-day construction of the first house that that we built. And and that was a, a real. Uh, I think God was working on me all that summer, you know. He was getting me ready for something else, and I, I wasn't quite sure what it was, but I was happy to be doing doing it. it, it here was the dedication of the first house uh, uh, we had. The day, And that day, the day that we had the dedication of this house, I was invited that evening up to a, a birthday party in Forest Park for my brother's girlfriend at the time. And uh, there uh, I met this girl on the front row here, uh, three or four weeks later, we were engaged and about three or four weeks after that, here we are, we're married, uh, bing, bang, boom. And all my fighter pilot buddies think they're fast movers. But uh, anyway, uh, it's probably a good thing that we got married that quickly. Uh, Mary Frances was born about 14 months later in December of 1999. And here's why it was a good thing we got married quickly. Uh, <laughs> Between us, we've got all eight letters of the Myers-Briggs <laughs> covered, not a single category in common. And when we were on the uh, marriage retreat uh, uh, a year and a half ago with Langston Haygood, he kind of says, is there anybody that's all completely different? And went, well, and he looked at our, he said, I hardly ever see that. And he spent about 15 minutes giving us his uh, personal, you know, $200 an hour, uh, analysis of, of, our, of our own situation and asking us questions about, well, he does this, well, do you do that? And, yeah. And anyway, so um, it's taken us about 10 years, uh, but well, I think we've about got it where we can live with it, you know <laughs> wouldn't you? Um, that's one of my favorite pictures right there. That's out of Brookwood Mall, I think. Everybody looks at Mary Francis and says, oh, she looks just like you, Charles. Well, there's her mama the same, about the same age. So there you go. And uh, that may be the first fish she ever caught. She got these at Walter and Jane's place out in Leeds. Um, My girls are just a constant source of inspiration to me, you know. They're just constantly lifting me up. about a year ago Judy Greenwood called us up and said uh, we found this dog over here in our neighborhood And uh, she's just the sweetest dog and she's housebroken and we've gotten her all her shots and You know so uh, we took her out on approval for the weekend and and about uh, two hours into the deal on Friday afternoon We called her back up so wow, we'll will we'll keep this dog So there's Annie the Wonder Dog and and she's sort of rounds out our little trio and, and it helps to balance things out sort of uh, between us. Here's another Pilgrim slide. Um, back about uh, 2001 or so, I had been running the Silver Learning Centers in, uh, in Mountain Brook and for a couple of years and finally decided I didn't want to keep doing that. And in possibly one of the biggest bonehead moves I've ever made in my life, I decided that I would leave this job. i just resign and devote myself full time to the job search, which took about a year and I was beating my brains out. I was going down all these little rabbit trails thinking I'd be interested in this sector, and then six weeks later in something else. i could get up every day and dress like this and grab my briefcase and head out of the house and work out of public libraries and cell phone and laptop and all that and go to interviews and, and networking and all this, but just didn't have a clue. Um, USS Thresher. You may remember back in the early 60s, uh, this submarine had an engineering casualty in the North Atlantic and sank and finally reached its crushed depth and and was destroyed and 130 lives lost with it. Well, we all talk about hitting bottom and what a blessing that can be and how God can work through situations by making you hit bottom. But here's one thing to remember. You you don't want to you want to make sure you hit bottom before you reach your crush depth. Okay, I mean there are things in life that really can crush you. Fortunately, I've never, God's never put me in that position where I've reached my crush depth before I, I hit bottom. But uh, the Holy Spirit, I've got this slide in here because Frank really liked it from his uh, Trinity Sunday sermon. I, I used to to illustrate the Father. Uh, is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Father, but the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. You know, God the Father, we're taught that 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 we can't stand in his presence without just having the dross of our humanity just consumed. Uh, the Son is very enigmatic, even to the people that lived with him for a couple of years. A lot of them didn't even understand what he was saying half the time. But the Holy Spirit really speaks to us pretty clearly, and usually pretty gently, notwithstanding uh, the debut that he made on Pentecost when he came in with the rushing wind and the fire on people's heads and all that. But but usually the Holy Spirit is a real gentleman and he doesn't push things too far, but he, he gives us what we need to hear. And so in March of 2002, we go to see Janice and Peter Newton. And uh, as most of you know, I mean, these, these people really are the real deal. I mean, they're not they're not gypsy fortune tellers. They're, you know, they're conduits for the Holy Spirit. And Janice had a tongue and in interpretation. I have a path for you, Charles. It reaches its end. No more false paths by which you have been tested, but the place where you will serve me honorably and truly. Um, bringing peace to those who are troubled and freeing the captives. You will reveal my spirit to those who do not know me. Well, that's pretty, that's still, I'm going, huh? I don't really quite understand what it is talking about, but after a year of beating my brains out, trying to figure out what I was gonna do for a living, I finally, I threw, literally threw in the towel and said, okay, I'm going out to Home Depot, putting on the orange apron, selling uh, circuit breakers and wire and ceiling fans and light bulbs. Before I even got through the indoctrination weekend that they have there, Joe calls me up on the phone, out of the blue, and it had occurred independently to him and to John Harper, to call me about a vacancy in pastoral care, part-time, what we now call the parish visitors ministry, or people that are homebound or in nursing homes. Well, you know, a Myers-Briggs INTJ doesn't really sound exactly like what you need doing that kind of work, but I was all, hey, I'm there, man, sign me up. And I started doing that part-time. The Holy Spirit equips us for the things that he wants us to do regardless. Of, of whatever aptitudes or, or tendencies we may have in our personalities or anything else. A few months later in August, uh, May May Cracky uh, re- resigns uh, her website job to ha- have their first baby, and I threw my hat in the ring for that, and, and so I'm editing the, the website as of about September, and then uh, it gets to be so busy that they, you know, they add another day to my schedule, and so now I'm, like, I'm full-time at the church, and I'm still doing weekends at Home Depot just because I like it. Uh, and I, I kept doing that for about a year before the schedule just forced me to kind of give that up. We added the podcast uh, a little later, um, and uh, about a year and a half ago, I picked up the, the day school website and, and we got it redesigned, and it, it kind of complements the cathedral site and vice versa. And, you know, working here, what can I say? I mean, it's about as good is being in some of my old flying squadrons in the Navy. I mean, the demographics are a little bit different, but the, the, you know, the camaraderie and the, and, and the sense of common purpose and, and the quality of the people, it is just a huge, huge blessing to be able to do this kind of odd combination of work. Now in the intervening years, I, I never was anything of, a, of an athlete as a kid, but I've become a little bit of, of a sort of a sportsman now uh, Jim Williams took this picture down at Selwood as posed, but you know, uh, if it's got feathers on it and, and it tastes good, you know, I'll I'll shoot at it. Uh, and I've become even more obsessed lately with the pursuit of the elusive white-tailed deer. And I've managed to put three of these uh, critters in the freezer so far. And if venison, and it's what's for dinner. If uh, if if we could, uh, you know, if we, if, we, if I could shoot enough deer, we would never eat beef again. You know, I mean, we like it that much. And then uh, Palm Sunday, I played hooky from church and uh, shot one of these guys and it was real tasty too. Uh, and I guess you could call this a Pilgrim slide too, couldn't you, yeah. <laughs> not not, not as, uh, as, as magnificent a specimen as this, but, but you know, a little 15 pound Jake, that was really uh, pretty good eating. So um, that's my slideshow. Uh, and we got about three minutes for uh, questions, I guess. So there we have it.
0: Thank you, Charles. Once again, it's 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 quite an adventure to see someone's whole life. Uh, and I must confess, I ran into you in Home Depot and 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 had some judgment about me in in your position. But I recognize now that uh, I've been there too.
1: Yeah. I don't know if you mentioned how you ended up um, attending this church. No, I didn't. Uh, good question. Uh, Donna and I got married at uh, St. Matthews, which was an Anglican church in, in Vestavia, it's still there. Um, she'd been uh, going to church there for a few years and that's where we got married. Um, but uh, what was it? We, got to, we came to your cousin's wedding here or Jim, something, Jim maybe. And Bull. Yeah, Jim and Sharon Bulla got married here. That's Donna's. Uh, Cousin, first cousin once removed, I guess, and and did Paul preach or something? I don't know. And we kind of started coming here about half the time, and then finally we realized we kind of needed to fish or cut bait and be in one place or the other. But we and, got into a small group. Yeah, yeah. That that. Thank you, thank you. Uh, we did. We we got into a small group that, that Warren and Glenn Lassiter were leading up in the in the Jeannie Reese room, and that really cinched it because you you, you come here, you know. You're out there in Cleveland Commons between services, and there's 400 people in the room. Everybody assumes you've been coming here for 20 years, and it's hard to get to know anybody. But that small group really uh, set the hook and and and, uh, and got us here. And, of course, I was going to all Paul all's Thursday morning Bible studies for two or three years before um, I ever wound up on staff. And, uh, yeah, that's how. Thank you, Chair. Oh, thank you.